Hello, everybody. Welcome to Coffee Time with Byron. I am your host, Byron. This is episode number 66. Alongside me is former NBA player Jim McElvain. Am I saying that correct? Sure. Perfect. I just did not want to get that wrong. <laughs> That's all right. If, uh, if, if you're worried, just say McLovin. Okay, there you that's, go. That's how I correct everybody when I'm traveling and they don't know how to say it. And to my knowledge, from what I'm seeing, you spent seven years in the NBA. You were on three different teams. The Washington Bullets, now called Wizards, Seattle Supersonics, and New Jersey Nets. That's correct. Perfect. So let's begin, shall we? You were drafted out of Marquette. Uh, spent four years there. You went in the second round. You were pick number 32 by the Washington Bullets. Um, did you think you were going to go second round? Were you chosen there? Who told you you were going to get drafted? Or did you think you were going to get higher in a draft? Um, I had worked out. I can't. You might have a draft in front of you. I worked out for Miami, mm. Cleveland. Uh, Portland, Golden State, New Jersey, um, the Bucks, and I think Portland might have had the highest pick at 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really had a good workout there. They actually had me shooting three-pointers. I had literally never shot three-pointers before um, because I just wasn't allowed to. And mm-hmm. I was making a bunch of them, so they were really impressed. And uh, that was my best workout. And and uh, they had told my agent and I that if Aaron McKee wasn't available, they were going to draft me. And uh, Aaron McKee was available, so they, they grabbed him. And, and then from that point, like New York wanted me to come in the day of the draft and work out, and I didn't. Um, at that point, it just, you, you don't know. You could end up anywhere. Mm. Uh, um, and I didn't work out for Washington, but they drafted me anyway. And it's it's not like you have to work out for a team in order for them to draft you. They they may want to get, you know, it's like if you're buying a car, you want to get another closer look under the hood. So right. taking a pre-purchase inspection, then that's kind of what a, a workout is before the draft. Um, so it didn't preclude them from drafting me. And... They didn't think I was going to be available. They liked me. They just didn't think they'd have uh, the ability to draft me with the picks that they had. So they were happy to get me. And um, and you know, they had uh, Kevin Duckworth and George Mirasan mm-hmm. under contract. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, the third big man. But my agent was encouraged because Kevin Duckworth was at the end of his career and was battling injuries. And even though George Mirasan was early on in his career, um, there was questions about his ability to play an 82-game schedule and have his body hold up, or anybody's for that matter, but right. particularly George because of his stature and situation. So um, my agent felt good about that situation, and especially because Derek Smith was one of the assistant coaches, mm-hmm. and Derek Smith was a client of my agent's, and... Derek Smith ended up being like an older brother to me in Washington. He was fantastic. And 
uh, helped me improve immensely while I was there. Even if I wasn't getting a lot of minutes on the court, he worked with me every day in practice and in shoot arounds and in pregame and, and helped me a lot. So um, it was, it was a very good situation for me. George ended up being a lot more durable than folks thought he was going to be. Mm. Um, and I really didn't get <clears throat> a tremendous opportunity to play extended minutes until late in my second year with the bullets when everybody and their brother on the roster was hurt. And I got to play starter minutes and averaged, I don't know, like 35 minutes a night for the last eight to 10 games of the season. It was during that stretch that I kind of made a name, put me at the top of a lot of people's lists for free agency. Now was the draft like what it was today? Like, or did the draft was the draft back then the worst team or is it now where it's just luck, like draft lottery or whatever? It's not the worst team no more. Was it? Was it like that back in the day? I, honestly, um, I don't know. I I think. I mean, there's certainly a lottery. Mm-hmm. There was a lottery back then. There's a lottery now, um, and and I think you got more balls or whatever as as your record was worse. Mm-hmm. Think the was it the Bucks? Did Glenn Robinson get picked number one my year? Yes, he did. They they may not have had the worst record, but they got lucky in the lottery or something, so they were able to get the number one pick. Um, so, but you know, regardless, it, it's probably very comparable, and teams can trade around their picks and all that kind of stuff, and they can have protected picks and unprotected picks that they traded for. So, um, it's. It's probably pretty similar to what it was back then now in that before, you know, years before I got drafted, they had like 10 rounds mm-hmm. and, and there was like 10 picks in each round or something or whatever. But they they knock it back to two rounds uh, a few years before my draft. And, and it's kind of been that constant ever since. And that makes sense because, you know, for the number of picks they have per round, you really don't need more than two rounds. Right. If you don't pick the first two rounds, you're probably not going to make a roster. And like you said, you spent your first two years as a backup. Uh, did you learn anything from it? Like, did you want to be a starter? What was your mindset in your first two years? Stay healthy and try to figure out how to stick around for another year and be ready to play when the opportunity presents itself and make the most of the minutes that you get when you get them. And, uh, it, it was an interesting scenario. Um, my, my rookie year, cause I was playing pretty well and my roommate, and I think I was the last guy in the NBA who had a roommate, uh, Anthony Tucker. We were last, probably last roommates in the NBA. Most guys have their own rooms, but you save a, at the time, you saved like five to $10,000 if you had a roommate a year. So we both wanted to save that money. So we, we had each other as roommates. Now, um, go ahead. So go ahead. He made, Tucker made the uh, the rookie team at the All-Star break. Mm-hmm. and uh, But they were going to do an expansion draft for Toronto and Vancouver later in the year. Mm-hmm. So um, Tucker's minutes... I can't remember what the point was in the season, but it might've been after February, like they stopped playing him. 
and he was like a regular contributor off the bench and doing really well. And then they just cold turkey. They stopped playing him, and he didn't have a very good agent. He didn't know what was going on. My agent knew everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And so my, I think my agent helped him understand the situation. And, and the situation was that you could only protect a certain number of players in the expansion draft. Right. Um, and they weren't going to protect Anthony. Um, so they didn't want uh, other teams to see how good a player Anthony was. And so I think they eventually cut him before he had a guaranteed contract. So he made it past the cut date mm-hmm. and, uh, and they cut him before the end of the season, so he wasn't on the roster. And then they brought somebody else on the roster that they didn't care about um, because they left Kevin Duckworth and Larry Stewart available, essentially. Those were the unprotected guys, and, and one of them was going to get picked by one of the expansion teams. And and uh, Tucker was like, he didn't understand what was going on because his playing time went away and then he got waived. And it's like, why would they waive me when they have to pay me anyway? And I'm like, well, because right. they can't protect you. They don't want to lose you. They want to resign you. But right. And so somebody in the, the league protested and, uh, and the bullets ended up getting in trouble for it. I think what happened was every, every other team in the league had a chance to sign Anthony Tucker before the bullets were allowed to try to resign him. Mm. And I think the Knicks signed him just to spite the bullets and then Tuck was running with Anthony Mason, got himself in a little bit of trouble, and that was the end of the NBA for Anthony Tucker. Um, so, you know, I, my, my agent did an excellent job of educating me about the business of basketball, mm-hmm. and my space in it became apparent to me immediately what my role was. Um, and Juwan Howard was drafted with me and, and went through a long uh, contract negotiation and, and – Missed all of training camp, missed, I think, part of the regular season. But then, like, the first game that he played, we're in these, you know, timeouts, and Jimmy Lynham's like, keep feeding Javon, keep giving him the ball. We got to get him hot. We got to get him rolling. We got to get. I'm like, wait a minute. I've, I've been here way longer, and nobody's feeding me the ball. And it's like, mm. Jim, you're not a lottery pick. Javon's a lottery pick, and we need to make sure that he feels comfortable. Right. He's a scorer in the NBA. So, right. You know, he was treated differently, and. If you don't like that, don't play in the NBA because not everybody's the same, even right. at that level. Right. They're not treated the same, and they, they they shouldn't be. They don't need to be. That's not the way that system operates. So I, I understood my my place and my position, and block shots, be a defensive stopper, get some rebounds, set some screens, get guys open, get them good shots, um, pick up a couple offensive rebound putbacks, mm-hmm. but. You know, I'm option number five offensively on every team. Not that I'm a terrible offensive player, but it's the NBA. Everybody in the NBA is great at offense, so I'm going to be option right. number five on every team I'm on. And, and if you can live with that, they'll give you millions of dollars. If you can't live with that, too bad for you. Now, like you said, you went through the expansion draft. You were, I know you said you weren't a part of it, but you obviously witnessed it with the two sure. teams, the Toronto coming in and Vancouver, which is now Memphis Grizzlies. Do you see that happening again with an expansion draft? I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't. That'd be a question the league would have to answer. I don't know how much shenanigans. I only know what was going on with the bullets, and you know, there's thirty some teams in the league. You can imagine that it's thirty times what the bullets were doing. 
Yeah. And so if that system, if they deem that system wasn't effective, they'd probably figure something else out if they were going to expand. And I think they should. I think Seattle should be the first expansion Oh, I know. They miss, yeah, they missed their team up there. Yeah. And and Vegas will probably end up getting a team. It'll probably be the one of the top destinations like New York, Chicago, L.A., Texas, and Florida are right now for free agents. Vegas will be right at the top of that list. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You're right, you're right on that. Who who wouldn't want to go to Vegas? Well, it's an income tax free state versus you know if if you're 90 miles to the west, you're going to give up 13 percent of your salary, you know, millions and millions of dollars a year just for yeah. being in the wrong state. So yeah, yeah, a lot of guys and and guys know that, and they've known that for years, and they're aware of it. And and it's the same. Yeah, that that was one of the reasons the Canadian team struggled so much was because of the tax structure, and it's cold. And oh, nobody yeah. wants to go up there. Right. You know, like I'd rather play for Atlanta and be warm or Phoenix and be comfortable or Miami. So. I know. I'm kind of amazed Toronto's lasted this long, haven't you? With nobody wanting it's, to go there? Well, Toronto's a different kind of city. Um, uh, you know, for a, for a typical NBA player, I think the nightlife is attractive and appealing and it has a certain reputation that guys enjoy. Mm-hmm. Certainly on road trips, guys enjoy spending an evening out on the town in Toronto. So even though it's cold, Toronto, Minneapolis, Toronto, Milwaukee. You know, I, I think a lot of guys will pick Toronto because they, you know, the nightlife is fun. Um, but it helps when you win. So Milwaukee now that that Giannis is there and they're winning a championship, it's right. it's more of a destination for guys than it has been historically. Now. You were you were a seven foot center in your day when you played. Every every position had a place. Every player was labeled that position. Nowadays, it's like totally different. Especially your position as center. Nobody's like labeled a center anymore in the NBA. Uh, why do you think that has changed from your day when you played? Game always changes. Um, it always evolves. When, when I was in the league, Pat Riley was successful, and uh, he emphasized defense a lot, and um, that, that's kind of how Summer League came about, you know. All it took was one or two teams that said, we're going to get our guys together in the summer, we're going to get some free agents together in the summer, mm-hmm. and see if we can get a little bit better, and then suddenly... Other owners are looking around like, hey, those guys are doing it. Why, sh- why can't we do it? And then suddenly everybody's doing it. Um, and it's a whole big thing. And, um, you know, the game ebbs and flows with the style of play. And the, the NBA understands what it is. It's entertainment, you know, sports entertainment. But it has to be fun to watch. And you want – I think they equate higher scoring games to games that are more fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And – I know there's a lot of fans of 90s, 80s, and 90s NBA basketball, and it was a different game. It was a lot more physical. They let you do a lot more things, and uh, and and it was reflected in in the physiques of the players. You know, I was I was coming into Seattle. I'd worked my first two years in the league to put as much weight on as I could because I came into the league at like two low 240s. Right. Finally got up into like mid 260s and. Right away, George Carl's like, I'd love it if you could lose like 10 pounds and get you up and down the court a little quicker. I'm like, George, come on. I just spent two years trying to put weight on. And I'm like, well, what about when we play Shaq? He's like, ah, it's only four times a year. 
I'm like, what about when we play Sabonis? Well, that's only four times a year. What about when we play Oscar Tag? It's only four. And it's like all these guys. I don't. I don't care what they list them at. They're all 300 plus pounds, and and they're strong back to the basket post players, and they're the best teams in the Western Conference. How much weight do you want me to give up to those guys? And right. and it's a low post, you know, power game. And so I I spent my whole career trying to put on as much good muscular weight as I could. Um, so, you know, eventually when you get players like um, Kevin Durant and um, guys that are tall but can play on the perimeter and can shoot the three, then the game starts to change and, and teams are like, oh, they're successful with that guy. Why can't we find a Kevin Durant? And then suddenly Giannis comes along and so I go, why can't we find a Giannis? And then they just start looking for more Giannis's. And then if you're yeah. a big guy, um, you don't want to be labeled as a center. You know, you want to, you want to let teams know I'm versatile. I can shoot the three. I can put the ball on the floor and maybe you can't, or maybe you shouldn't, but you don't want to limit your opportunities. So um, I think for, for different periods of time, guys have kind of shied away from the moniker of center because it, it has a connotation to it that you're a low post back to the basket player, which is what I was. Um, and, and that's just not the style of, of basketball right now. But at the end of the day, whatever style is popular or successful or pervasive in the league, if you have a skill set that they need that can help your team win games, they'll find a way to get you on a team and, and get you minutes and, and get you to play, whether it's blocking shots or, steals or whatever, you know, full court pressure, whatever it is that you do that hardly anybody in the world does, they'll find a spot for you. So uh, in 96, like you said, you went into free agency. Now tell me a little about this because even, even, even though I was five, I still watched the game. I don't really remember <laughs> this. Uh, you what? Come on. I knew everything. I had such good. No, I know five years old. Yeah, I know, I'm five. I'm just uh, glad you were alive. Makes me feel a little bit younger. <laughs> you signed a $33.6 million deal with them. The fans were upset because I guess they had a favorite player in Kemp, Sean Kemp, who also wanted a contract extension, but they ended up giving it to you. Uh, take us through that. Was was there tension between you and Kemp that year, or did you have any clue that not, or did you not know what was going on? Well, like I said, I had a really good agent who was really dialed in to the entire league and knew what was going on. And unfortunately, there were a lot of guys in the league who did not have as good a representation as I did. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if did you watch the Last Dance? I did. Okay, so you saw the deal with Scottie Pippen being upset with his contract? I did, yes. And and he had an injury early in his career, and, you know, when he signed his long-term deal, you know, you have to put yourself in the player's perspective. And, you know, that provided security for him. It wasn't the biggest money in the league, and it locked him in for a long time, but it was, you know, in theory – it was security for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can understand why guys would sign deals like that. Um, my agent was very meticulous and very, 
I would say, how how would I describe it? He was very specific in his intent with me as a player. Um, When I was drafted, the Bullets weren't obligated to give me any kind of contract. You know, first-round players could guarantee contracts, whatever. Now they're like slots and all that. As a second-round player, they didn't have any obligations to give me a contract. Right. Um, I played. I played my way into a, an offer in the summer league, and they offered me a three-year deal. I'm like, this is great because after three years, you're vested in the league's pension. You're you know, barely, but you're vested. So I've, I've at least got a guaranteed pension, and and this is great. And my agent's like, yeah, we're not going to take that deal. <laughs> what? It's three years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're not going to take that deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what what deal are we going to take? And it was like. I can't remember the terms. It might have been like 150, which was almost league minimum, like 150, 175, 200 for three years. He's like, yeah, we're not going to take that deal. And that seemed like pretty good money to me. And and I ended up signing a one-year contract for $200,000. And the way he explained it to me was, as much as we liked Jimmy Lynham as a coach and Derek Smith as an assistant, um, he didn't have the same degree of confidence in the way the organization was being run. He liked John Nash, but maybe more on the ownership side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he, he wanted me, me to get to a different franchise that was focused on winning a championship. Everybody, everybody in the NBA says they, that's their goal and it should be. But, you know, when you, when you look at how they operate and the moves that they make and, and, what they're doing to try to entice free agents to come in and stay and resign. Mm. It's pretty easy to figure out which teams are serious about it and which teams um, are just kind of talking the talk and not really walking the walk. So um, after at that time, and I don't know what the leagues or rules are like now, um, once you get done with your first contract, then you become a restricted free agent. So that meant after my first year, I could sign an offer sheet with another team and the bullets were allowed to match that, and then I would have to return to the bullets. Mm. So after my first year, um, Kevin Garnett was going to get drafted by the Minnesota Timberwolves, and Kevin McHale liked my game, um, liked me as a person, as a off-the-court influence, wanted me to be around uh, Kevin Garnett and, and surround him with good people who were going to help challenge him and make him better. And, and I can't remember... It was, it was like the only game I had, like, pretty solid double figures. It was a preseason game against the Timberwolves, and it was like Kevin Garnett's first game. I had, like, 18 on him or something. And he was like a deer in headlights because it was his first game, and I knew that because I went through that myself. Right. And I took advantage of it, just like guys took advantage of me when, when right. I was a rookie in the league. Right. Um, but I signed a one-year uh, offer sheet with the Timberwolves for $525,000. And my agent put some things in there that he was hoping the the uh, bullets wouldn't be willing to match. And one of them, and this may sound trivial, one of them was that I got to park my car inside the arena. And in certain teams, like the Timberwolves, everybody parks their car inside of the arena. Why wouldn't they? Um, and and that's that's kind of standard now, because if you don't, then you know you got to fight your way out to a parking lot area and, you know, people get Sharpie all over your car and they're clamoring for autographs and stuff. So, um, you know, like everybody on the Knicks, they all park their car inside MSG. And so the bullets 
apparently didn't have room inside the U.S. Air Arena to park everybody's cars, but they were able to find parking space for Juwan Howard's car and, like, you know, Scott Skiles or whatever, you know, a couple guys, Chris Weber maybe. And so um, my agent put in there that I had to have one of those parking spots inside. And, and there was some other stuff like that. And so the Bullets were fighting with the league over that, over and and eventually they won and got all those other you know little tidbits tossed out so it was just a straight 525 and then i missed most of almost well most of the training camp my second year because of that mm. and they brought me in late and then i had shin splints because i was in cincinnati trying to work out and stay in shape and i was doing step aerobics on concrete and i got shin splints so um yeah, I signed a, another one-year deal for five hundred twenty-five thousand, and then uh, which, you know, then when I look back at the the original deal, one hundred and fifty, one hundred seventy-five, two, like wow, five twenty-five. My second year, this guy knows what he's doing. Well, he really did because um, he knew the timing of all the contracts in the NBA, and he knew after my second year there was going to be several key teams, important teams. Um, Houston Rockets, Boston Celtics, Seattle Supersonics, um, Miami Heat. A, a lot of teams are going to have a lot of salary cap space, and they're going to be going after free agents like crazy. Um, and in the NBA at that time, I don't know if it's different, after you've played two contracts, you become an unrestricted free agent. Then you can sign with anybody you want for as much money as you want, and your team can match it or beat it, and you don't have to resign with them. You can go anywhere you want. Right. So he knew that and he timed my contract so that I would be an unrestricted free agent when all these teams around the league had all kinds of salary cap space and money to spend. And everybody wanted a big guy to be a Shaq stopper or, you know, a Patrick stopper or David Robinson stopper or whatever. Right. And, uh, it, it didn't, it didn't make sense to me because I felt like I knew who I was as a player and I, I felt like I was a solid contributor on any team that I would play for. But, I didn't know if I was really worth the money that all these teams are throwing around, but it's, it's, you know, what the market will bear. And when the dust settled, the Sonics wasn't the highest offer. They weren't the second highest. They, they were like the third highest, but they had just come off a trip to the NBA finals. And my agent had other clients who played on that team and they were serious about winning a championship and it showed. Um, they were they were committed. They had a great practice facility. Um, at the time, the Washington Bullets were practicing at Bowie State University in a gymnasium that Bowie State didn't even use anymore for their team. Mm-hmm. And like ceiling tiles were falling down, and it it didn't have good temperature control. So they had to bring in like portable air conditioning units in the summer, and and the showers didn't work really well. It was, it was like my high school gym was way better than the gym we were practicing in at Bowie State. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go to Seattle, and they had their own dedicated practice facility with two full-size regulation NBA courts, state-of-the-art weight room, state-of-the-art training room. They had a hyperbaric chamber. Nobody had a hyperbaric chamber back then. Seattle did because they were trying to keep Nate McMillan and Gary Payton on the court. And Frank Furtado was the best trainer in the league. And Bobby Medina was the best strength coach in the league. And the guys they had on the team, top to bottom, were all professionals who were serious. You know, they had fun, like all NBA players do, but when it came time to practice, they showed up for practice, and when they played, they played. So, you know, to look at Sean's situation, I don't I don't know 
much about his agent or his representation of Sean. Um, but it's not like my agent had secret access to the NBA salaries. Mm-hmm. And and he was the only guy in the league that knew there was going to be a bunch of free agent money available that summer. Gary Payton's agent knew. Right. Because Gary Payton was a free agent that summer. Right. Now, there is a little anxiousness on their part because there was salary cap room. And for a bird exception, you could re-sign your own player for whatever you wanted. So Seattle had to sign me before they signed Gary. Because if they signed Gary first, then it would use up all their salary caps. Basically, they couldn't sign anybody they else. They couldn't sign you, yeah. Right. So they signed me, and then they could go out and sign Gary. Well, Sean inked a long-term deal. I never made more money when I was in the NBA in any year than Sean made. Um, but he signed a, a deal before the money got really big. And and it was like, you know, you're locked into this deal. The only way you can get out of the kind of deal that he was in was to be the disgruntled, I demand a trade kind of player. And, and I don't think that's really in Sean's nature, but – you know, from a business standpoint, you've got a narrow window where you can make right. he had to do millions what he had of dollars to do. in the NBA. Yeah, he had to do so, what he had to do. Yeah, I got yeah. it. Yeah, so I, I understood that. And Sean and I got along fine. In fact, uh, he and I were just texting probably like right around Christmas time. Um, we keep in touch a little bit. And, there you go. Um, we always got along well. And, and the, you know, I, I don't know if it's any specific media outlet uh, somebody needed something, whether it was somebody that needed something to talk about on, on a sports talk radio show or a columnist needed to fill up words because he had nothing else to write about. There wasn't, you know, as far as Sean and I were concerned, there wasn't any, you know, none of this going on with him and I. I think in general, everybody in the NBA is really happy when everybody else signs big money, especially if they think they're a better player than the guy that signed big money. Because that means their next contract, they're going to get way more than that guy. Yeah. And so, I, you know, the next Players Association meeting, I was inundated with guys who were so happy for me for the deal that I signed. Because, you know, they all felt they were better players than me and they were going to go out and sign bigger contracts. And a lot of them did. Yeah. Um, some of them didn't because they, maybe they didn't have as good an agent. But um, so Sean and I always got along fine. But um, I didn't understand and maybe the one thing my agent didn't have a fully a good grasp on was the dynamic between George Carl, who's the coach and Wally Walker, who's GM Mm. and whether that went back to their days in the ACC when Wally was at Virginia and George was at Carolina and they butted heads and it seemed like George, um, you know, he, he had, he's, he's a fun coach to play for. Probably my favorite coach to play for. And I've told him that, he had the best, the best, top to bottom, the best coaches working under him. They're all head coaches at some point in the NBA, Bob Weiss and Wayne Casey and Terry Stotts and all those guys. And Tim Gergerich, what a fantastic – Tim Gergerich is like at any level the best coach there is in basketball. Everybody um, who's played at any level in college or the NBA would love to spend time with Tim Gergerich anywhere. He's such a good coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so George really had a great staff. But I, I feel like he was insecure in some ways, as probably everybody is, and wanted more control over personnel. Like, And I understand that perspective. It's like, I, you know, you're handing me all these guys. I've got to figure out how to make them play and how to be successful and how to win. I want to have some say in these guys that are coming in because I think I can pick these guys that will play better. And as it turns out, you know, George came to Milwaukee and, 
and they gave him a little more leeway and he brought in some guys and it didn't work out so well. So, you know, maybe, maybe Wally Walker was a better general manager than, than George wanted to admit at the time. And, but you know, at the end of the day, I didn't, you know, Wally's like, I'm going to sign McIlvain. And George told me right away, I, I want a Bison Daly, Brian Williams. And, and so, you know, he played me to the degree that he felt he had to play me, but I wasn't, I was never his guy. He had Sam Perkins there and Sam was, you know, his guy. And then he brought in uh, Jerome Kersey or Terry Cummings. And I got minutes, but I never got, you know, I, I got minutes in preseason and put up some numbers. And but once the regular season came around, it was hard for me to get extended minutes. And, and so, you know, in, in my mind, I was just trying to win basketball games and win a championship. And I didn't want to make waves. And I love the team. I love my teammates, my coaching staff. And so, you know, if George wants to play me 18 minutes, I'll do my very best for 18 minutes. If he wants to play me 38, I'll love it and play for 38. But I never saw near the minutes in Seattle in any game that I saw those last 8 to 10 or whatever my second year in Washington. Now, like you said, you were part of some great teams with the Seattle Supersonics yourself. Gary Payton, Nate McMillan. Uh, I know the West was stacked, but because you had us, you had Utah with Malone and Stockton. Stockton, uh, Malone, Hortisek, yeah. Yep. uh guys like that, uh, Charles Barkley, etc. Uh, yeah, Phoenix was really good. Danny Manning and, and San Antonio was really good with David Robinson, Tim Duncan, and the West was, you know, stacked. Sacramento was really good. So ultimately, Mitch Richmond and Vladi. Ultimately, what was it that you think why you guys couldn't get over that hump? Was it because of the stacked conference? Is that why you guys couldn't make the finals or win it? Is it because of that stacked talent? Uh, it's the NBA is it's just an incredibly talented league and and you can pick whatever area you want. Um, and, and the difference between the top level of college basketball and the worst of the NBA is so vast. Most people can't even begin to comprehend how good the worst players are in the NBA compared to, you know, the best teams in college basketball. Um, it's just really, really hard. You know, it was it was really hard to win sixty games, um, but we had such a talented team, and it was it was getting older, and guys were getting beat up. Nate McMillan was, you know, they're putting duct tape and whatever they could on him to try to keep him going and saving him for the playoffs. And, yeah. and Detlef would break a thumb, and Gary Payton had so many minutes on his body. I don't know how that guy did it. Yeah, I mean, he went out and played huge minutes every he night did. and wanted yeah. to. Oh, and and it, we had Eric Snow on the bench. He turned out to be a phenomenal player in Cleveland, but you would have never known it in Washington because yeah, Gary right. would have never let him get off the bench. That's right. Um, and so I, I don't know if it's, it's, it's a combination of, you know, the age of some of the guys and the talent around the league. It's really hard. You know, we can, you know, we can, we can beat teams, you know, at one point in the season that we can't beat later in the season and vice versa. And, and we had, you know, one of the top teams in the West both years I was out there. But Houston was really good. And Minnesota was on the way up because they had Garnett and Stefan Marbury and some other talented yeah. guys. We were able to get past them. Um, and Dikembe was in 
Denver and they knocked the Sonics out one year and Portland was really good. And it's just, it was a really talented league and the West was particularly talented uh, during my two years out there. But that's, you know, I think the Plumleys talked about it. You'd rather be, you know, you know, eating scraps off the table of, you know, the best in the world than to be a big fish in a little pond, I guess. That's that's a terrible use of an analogy, but you get what I'm saying, I get what right? You're saying. Yep, I get what you're saying. A dog amongst kings versus a king amongst dogs. Yep. I think that's what the Plumleys said. So you obviously played you obviously play, I know you at least played against these guys at some point in your career. Uh Kobe and Michael. Obviously there's comparison between the two. One's the goat and one wanted to be him. Out of what you saw when you did play, did you think Kobe really wanted to be like Mike, or do you think he wanted to be his own player? Why wouldn't he? I wanted to be like Mike. Who wouldn't want to be like Mike? Mike was the best in the league. Um, but at the same time, I, I think everybody wants to be their own player, their own man. Um, but you, you could pick a lot worse people to, to model your game off of than, than Michael Jordan. Um and Kobe was phenomenally talented, just like Steph is phenomenally talented, and Giannis and, and LeBron and all those guys. Michael won a lot of championships, and, and Kobe won a lot of championships. It's it, it's fun when they make the conversation hard about who's the greatest of all time, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It, it is tough. It is tough. I mean, I, I mean Kobe, Kobe was something. He had – I don't know. It was – if anybody was nearest to Mike, though, it was definitely him. I know they're saying LeBron of this generation is like him, but out of you know, they're saying the goat is between him and him and Mike that they're the two same. But I don't know, Kobe. Yeah, had, I don't know. Kobe had I mean, that that's, instinct. That's leaving out several eras of basketball and guys like Wilt Chamberlain who put up such ridiculous numbers against some pretty yeah, good. And nobody talks famers. about him. Nobody talks about him. I talk about him. I talk about Kareem. I talk about Oscar Robertson. I mean, there's it, it's great when there's so many fantastic players that make it a hard conversation and, and make it difficult to, to pick one out. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dr. J, the list goes on and on. And, and eventually you can whittle it down a little bit by saying, well, who won championships and how many did they win and who was around them and how much of it was them versus – you know, the coach or the team and, and that kind of stuff. But a lot, of, a lot of good players over the years. So in your final years with the um, Nets, did you know it was towards the end of your career? Was it injuries or was it because you're, you're, uh, there was other players coming up in the ranks? What was it that made you want to retire or did you feel like you wanted to still play? Well, I was tearing something or breaking something pretty much every year of my career. Mm-hmm. And and I was fortunate for the first several years that I could wait until the end of the season to go get surgery and put myself in a cast and do all the rehab and I could play through stuff. I had a broken wrist that I played through in Seattle and mm-hmm. you know stuff like that. And, and you really, you know, like if you're Shaq, you don't want to tell everybody your big toe is killing you. Because everybody playing against is going to stomp on that big toe as hard as they can and try to make it worse. Mm-hmm. 
and, and so you, to a certain degree, you, you downplay your injuries if you're going to try to play through them. And, and don't talk about it. I tore my shoulder up in New Jersey. Um, but my last year, I ruptured my left calf and partially tore my left Achilles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was taking Cipro at the time because I had a sinus infection. And I think they've since made a connection between Cipro and um, a tendency for ligament damage, like makes you more susceptible to tears and things like that. So had I known that, I probably would have stayed away from the Cipro. But the Cipro, I was, I had issues with penicillin, with, you know, stomach problems so i couldn't take penicillin so i was taking cipro and um mm-hmm. I, I would have tried something else because that was that was a really devastating injury for me mm-hmm. um and you look around at guys that have had issues with their achilles and, and like wesley matthews who also played at marquette had an achilles injury and i was i was really worried for him because there's so many you know, there's you can count them on a hand, you know, Wesley Matthews, Dominic Wilkins, the guys that have serious Achilles injuries and are able to come back and play anywhere near the level that they were at before the injury. Right. And, and maybe technology is getting better now, but back then it, it wasn't that great. And Jamie Fike was on the team with me and he had bone spurs all over his feet and in, in his ankles and under his Achilles. And it was just killing him. Mm. And, and it got to the point where, the only way to deal with it was to cut the Achilles and take the bone spurs out. They said, Jamie, if we cut your Achilles, you may never play again. But he was at the point where he said, it's at the point where I can't play now. So you have to cut the Achilles and try to try to make this work. He never played again. Mm-hmm. So I knew the seriousness of it. Um, and thankfully, it wasn't a complete tear of the Achilles. It was a you know rupture of the, the calf, which was easier to heal. But it's a long long process to come back for. I was probably a couple weeks away from coming back when the season ended. Um, and my contract every year was, you know, it, it went up 20% a year. So I was going into, what was it? Year five of a seven year contract. So three, three, six, four, two, four, eight, They're going to have to pay me five, four, and then six, and then six, six in those last three years. So it's big money that they didn't want to pay. They want to move in a different direction. And I understood that. And, you know, when I was, when I was a rookie in the league, I saw the same thing happen with um, Kevin Duckworth. He was, he had a, at the time for the time, it was a pretty big contract and the bullets didn't want it. They wanted to move in a different, younger direction. And I saw it again in New Jersey with Ronnie Cycli, who was getting paid a pretty big contract and, and was kind of at the end of his career and, 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 you know, some guys choose to hang on. And Scott Skiles would affectionately refer to some guys as having Jesse James years where you just got to steal some money from the league. And maybe Scott was one of those guys himself. But, um, I, you know, I felt like I had made really good money in the NBA and kind of set myself up really well for and my family for, for the rest of my life. I didn't want to be a guy that I saw the dynamic on some teams where guys were hanging on because the money was just too good to walk away. Right. And they, they couldn't do it. And it was, it was terrible for team chemistry. It created a rift between coaches and players, players and other players. Like everybody looked at that guy, like we know why you're here and it's not because you want us to win games it's because you want to collect that paycheck. Yeah. And I didn't want to be that guy in that locker room because I never was. Um, so uh, they offered me a buyout, um, and they waited. I was playing pickup with Marquette in the summer before the season started, 
and and Lawrence Frank, who was an assistant on the Nets at the time, was uh, was a graduate assistant when I was at Marquette. So he knew people at Marquette, and um, they verified it. Max going up and down the court, he's fine. He's going to be okay. And uh, I won't say who it was, but there was another NBA big man. I think he blew his knee out riding a horse or something. He got thrown off a horse and got into training camp. It had a big, for the time, a big contract and, like, pretended that he hurt himself in warm-ups before they even got the stretching. But he, he did it on the court, so he got his contract paid out and never played again or whatever. Mm. Um, so they <clears throat> they wanted to make sure before they offered me a buyout that they had to because, you know, if, if I couldn't play again, then insurance maybe would pay it out. But I was going to play again. And when they saw that that was the case, then they wanted to buy me out and they wanted to go in a different direction. And at that point, my agent had passed away. And uh, Bill Strickland uh, was nice enough to kind of hold my hand through the buyout process. And we went in there. And, and I'm, I'm not kidding you when I told you I signed the buyout on September 10th, 2001, hmm. the day before 9-11. Wow. And, uh, and I woke up the next morning and could not believe what was going on because I could see the smoke from my house in New Jersey. Wow. And, and people in my people in my neighborhood died in those buildings because people worked in those buildings. Right. It was like, you did not know. It was chaos out there. You didn't know what was going to happen. All of a sudden, gas was like $5 a gallon. And I'm like, I just, you know, I, I just signed this buyout. But is there even going to be an NBA or are they going to f- fly airplanes into arenas all year long? Until right. You know, everything shuts down. You just didn't know. And yeah. meanwhile, there's thousands of dead New Yorkers and, and New Jersey people there. And it's just, it's, it was chaos. So, um, crazy, crazy times. And, uh, I had actually, uh, I, I was certified in, uh, logistics and some other, I took some different classes with the Red Cross, um, when, when I didn't have anything else going on, I actually went back and worked at uh, Brooklyn Heights. I volunteered for the Red Cross. Here because, you know, I was, I, my contract had been bought out. So it's like, what else am I going to do? I'm going to go in and work at Brooklyn Heights. So those yeah. emails that people saw circulating about how Ford and Chevy and, and Dodge did all this stuff for 9-11 and BMW didn't do anything. That's, I knew that was garbage because I worked at Brooklyn Heights and, and BMW sent a bunch of X5 SUVs up to the Red Cross to use to drive around and, and bring supplies around and stuff. So um, it was, I was glad I was able to, I felt like I was doing something productive um, because I just, I didn't know what the future held for me in any regard. Um, I didn't know if my contract buyout was going to be paid out or honored because I didn't know if there was going to be an NBA season and right. obviously it ended up happening. Right. But it was, it was a lot of uncertainty. And the way the buyouts work is, um, and I had a couple teams call me after I got bought out. Um, whatever New Jersey owed me would be offset against what the new team would pay me. So if I made vet minimum playing for you know the Bulls or, or the, the Rockets and they paid me 700000 then New Jersey wouldn't have to pay me that 700000 So I'm basically playing for free to play another year. Yeah. I have to pay all my moving expenses to go down to whatever city I'd go to. And then if the team made the playoffs, then I could, you know, 
first round share might've been $15,000. And so you're just, you know, and I had three years left on my buyout. Um, so I would have had to sit out for three years and, and, and that, you know, so there wasn't any teams that were looking to make deep runs in the playoffs that made a compelling case for wanting me. So I just, that seemed like the right time to stop playing. Fair enough. So you obviously played uh, center, like like we had talked about earlier. Uh, besides Shaq, what would a center, other centers in the league that you went up against that uh, gave you like the most fits playing wise? Hakeem Olajuwon was the hardest center. Oh my goodness, was that guy tough? Because he he was, you know, he re- demanded attention of the entire team mm-hmm. and for a guy like me who's a shot blocker and a good defender around the basket Hakeem is like that's fine because I can I can go out to three and I can put the ball on the floor and draw draw you away from the basket and make it harder for you to defend me and help on anybody else and that's exactly what he did so <clears throat> guys like that were, were the really and and you know you can send a double team, but he's going to pass out of it. And not only is he going to be able to pass out of it and not turn it over, he's going to make a great pass. And, and it's going to go to somebody who's probably, you know, Kenny Smith or Mario Ellie. They're going to be spotted up for a wide open three as, as whatever team you're on is hustling to try to rotate and cover. Um, Hakeem was just a really, really difficult matchup for anybody in the league, regardless of what their skill set was. He was hard. He, his moves were so good around the basket, and and you wouldn't think it in the NBA, but most guys, at least back to the basket centers at that point, favored one shoulder or the other. Like most right-handed guys would go left shoulder. Most left-handed guys would go right shoulder. Mm-hmm. Akeem was great over either shoulder and deadly effective over either shoulder by design. You know, he didn't want to have a weakness like that where teams could force him to his right he wanted to have just as good a move, just as hard to stop moves to stop to the right as he did to the left, and he 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 did. He was he was deadly over either shoulder. So overall, in your career, you scored over a thousand points, had over a thousand rebounds, and about seven hundred blocks. Uh, I know this is a t- touchy subject, but do you think you played long enough to possibly get a vote to be in the Hall of Fame? No, it's not a touchy subject at all. And and uh, when I first retired, I signed up for the NBA retired Legends of Basketball, NBA Retired Players Association. They had the option. I think they still have the option for a platinum lifetime membership. You pay like thirty five hundred bucks, or it's like two hundred bucks a year. I'm like, I'm gonna pay the thirty five hundred bucks. I'm like twenty eight, twenty nine years old. I'll get my money out of this because they pay for your hotel right. for every summer meeting. Right. I'm like, I, I can find a way to get my $3,500 out of it. And I have more, more. I mean, I would have paid that much money just to go out and hang out with some of those guys. And one of the first years out, I think we were at the Sky Bar at Palms because the Maloof brothers who own the, the um, Sacramento Kings let us in there. And it was just the legends of basketball. And Bill, Bill Walton is in there walking around with a cameraman, doing interviews. <laughs> he comes up to me, so gracious. He's like, I'm here with NBA legend Jim McElvain. Let me stop you right there, Bill. Okay, 
there's thousands of guys in the NBA and most of them are not legends. And that's easy to figure out because there's only a handful of really true legends. You're one and he is one. Oh yeah. But he is. But guys like me, you know, I, I wouldn't say we're a dime a dozen, but there's hundreds and hundreds of, you know, just average NBA players. In fact, my, my son was telling me about some girl who's playing uh, volleyball for the Wisconsin Badgers. And she's 6'9", and her brother apparently played tennis at Marquette. Mm-hmm. And their dad was a seven-footer who played in the NBA, and mom was 5'9", or something. And we're always curious when we find the tall girls, because my wife is 6'7", and we've got a daughter together. And and we're, you know, we're kind of wondering how tall she's going to end up being. And so whenever we can find a 6'8", or 6'9", girl, we try to figure out what her parents' heights were so we can kind of get a feel for where's our own daughter heading height-wise. Um, so, it, you know, that guy played five years in the NBA, and I think he played on a championship team with the Lakers. He was, you know, deep on the bench, but you know what? He got a ring. And yeah, he got a ring out of it, yeah. I never got a ring and never came closer than Seattle, you know, Western Conference Finals. Um, it's – some guys are lucky and and the more talented you are and the harder you work the luckier you get but some guys are just lucky too and uh sam cassell is a great player and won a ring his first two years in the league because he was on the rockets and he got a little bit lucky because he was there with hakeem and 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 clyde and and they had a great team so um that happens sometimes and i wasn't lucky enough to have that happen but i was so lucky to be able to even spend one year in the NBA, let alone uh, seven years I was in there. What a fantastic experience. Well, yeah, you got to play a bunch, play with a bunch of Hall, Hall of Famers, if not yet Hall of Famers. Like, I mean, play with, play against. Yeah. Just, you know, and it, it wasn't as surreal. In some ways, it was because. Here I am, a high school senior in 1990, and I've got, you know, Marcus Johnson posters and Julius Irving posters and Hakeem Olajuwon posters on my bedroom wall in high school. And literally five years removed from that, and Marcus Johnson is calling the game on the radio, and I'm guarding Hakeem Olajuwon and, and Patrick Ewing. It's like five years ago, I was just looking at your picture on my bedroom wall. And yep. I'm playing but, um, And I was really in that first generation that played AAU basketball at a serious level. So um, I played against Penny Hardaway in high school and Chris Weber and Sean Bradley. And so, and and Juwan Howard, I played in the city league in Chicago because I lived in Wisconsin. It wasn't that far. And our AAU team would go down and play in the city league in Chicago. And I saw some tremendously talented players in AAU basketball that never even made it to college basketball they just have the grades or didn't have the mental aptitude to or the the ability to stay out of trouble playing college guys that probably could have played the nba but um as you progress through those levels you you know like nick van exel was in the same conference as me in high school i played against him for three years He he was like best friends with the point guard on our team wagner lester who played football at illinois um so by the time you get to the nba you know, Juwan and I both commented at our press conference when we were drafted that we were glad we knew the other guy that got drafted, so at least we know somebody on the team. But, you know, I get on this team, 
and there's Mitchell Butler and Don McLean who played at UCLA. And I went out for a visit at UCLA when I was in high school and almost went to school there. And so I knew those guys a little bit. And I played against Tom Gugliotta when, when North Carolina State came to Marquette and, and I got blown out of the water when we played at NC State. And like John Nash, the GM is talking to me about it. Like, we don't want you to think that we don't have faith in you, but we want to draft Evan. We think he's a great. I'm like, John, I love Evan. I know the guy. We both played for Kevin O'Neill. He played for him at Northwestern. And and we've already talked. And if you draft him, he's going to live in my house his, his, friend, his rookie year. And he did. He lived with me his rookie year. And, and I actually got the idea for that because my rookie season, um, Rex Chapman had Kenny Walker living at his house. So I knew it had been done. And I knew other guys in the league did it. And and just, you know, it was it was great having Evan live with me. And and we talked all the way to practice and all the way back from practice and, and, and games and stuff. And it was just – and it was funny. We, we could go like – Halfway through the season, and guys on the team didn't even know that Evan was living in my house. And it just kind of like casually came up. Like, wait a minute, Evan lives in your house? Like, yeah, yeah, I got this house. And, and like, we went shopping. It was like, see, Evan could have this room because it's got its own private bathroom. My wife's like, yeah, that'd be cool. And so, yeah, it, what, a, what a great time the NBA was. So, what fun. So two more questions before I let you go. Uh, the first one <clears throat> is out of the, the players – that you played with, who do you think should be in the Hall of Fame that's been snubbed so far? If you can name I, I don't know. I don't know who's been snubbed, and I don't... I think Gary Payton's in the Hall of Fame, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah he, he belongs there. Um, I don't know. It's... I, I don't look at it just from the NBA level, but I look at it from the college level, and you know, some of these programs have a history of so many great players that have come through the programs um, that they had to actually, at some schools, I think they put in, like they couldn't retire all the numbers because then they'd be like the Celtics and run out of numbers and guys have numbers like 76 on because that's all they got left. Well, yeah, look at Duke. Yeah, they had so many, yeah. You know, so I think what most schools do now is they honor guys and like certain schools, you know, look, you had to win a championship. Or you had to be an All-American. You had to do, you know, Player of the Year or something like that to be honored like that. And so the standard for me at the NBA level to get into the Hall of Fame, I feel like it needs to be high because the Hall of Fame should be really significant and mean something. And I, I honestly, I don't follow the game closely enough to be able to, like, I don't follow the modern game nearly as much as I did from 2000 back to the beginning. Um, and so is winning a championship an important criteria to get you in? Yeah. But is it the only thing that should keep guys up? Nah, you know, there's, there's guys like Dominique Wilkins and Charles Barkley, maybe who didn't win championships who need to be in the hall of fame. Um, but I'll leave those decisions to people that follow the game more closely because everybody's willing to spout off and give an opinion on that stuff. And it's, usually half-baked and ill-informed and I don't, I don't need to add to that mess. You know, I'd, I'd rather trust more knowledgeable people who are more passionate about it and care more deeply about it and follow it far more closely than I do to, to make those judgment calls. So the last question for, it's a two part question. The first part is for anybody growing up 
that wants to be a center in the NBA, what would you tell them? And the second part is define your career in one word. All right. Um, let's see. The center question is pretty easy to ask. Because if you want to be a center in the NBA, look at your parents. If they don't look like they could have played in the NBA or the WNBA, you need a plan B. Um, I got I, My parents met at the Chicago Tall Club. And in the fifties, uh, you know, six four was pretty tall for a guy. Six foot was pretty tall for a woman. Really tall for a woman. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, my wife is six seven. I'm seven one. We've got a son and a daughter, and they are a head taller than everybody their age. And and a lot of times, kids that are a year or two older. That's what's going to get you to the center position in the NBA. Now you can, you can work really hard and be really skilled and develop your game and get pretty far. If, if you don't have that God given ability and, and gift of height, but man, height can take you a very long way. I can't remember what they said. It's something like 10% of the seven footers in the world play in the NBA or something like that. Something like that. I've, heard, I've heard that before. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, 90% of them don't. Cause it's really hard. <laughs> um, so one word to sum up my NBA career, I would say probably would be blessed. Just blessed. Yeah. Oh. And, and I don't know how anybody who played in the NBA couldn't answer that honestly, because that's, that's the mountain that most people only see from a distance. You know, there's, there's more people that climb Mount Everest every year than have ever played in the NBA. I mean, it's ridiculously hard to get to the NBA. So anybody who gets there is blessed, and there's there's really no argument there. And, and I, I think that's that's a pretty safe answer. And real quick, bonus one: What was? Did you ever get to meet David Stern? What was he like as a person? Did you ever get to meet oh, him? Oh yeah, I spent a lot of time around David Stern because I was active with the Players Association. Um, I was a player rep for six years and I was on the executive committee for several years. I was a secretary of the players association. I was on a negotiating committee during the lockouts. I spent weeks in, in negotiations with David Stern. He's a very shrewd, smart businessman um, and worked a room really well and really was one of the defining people in NBA history, I think. Um, in terms of identifying, you know, when, when David Stern got there, the league was in real trouble. Um, people now probably don't even realize the Utah Jazz used to be in New Orleans. And, and there was such a problem with drugs in New Orleans that they cut, you know, the, the most sweethearted deals to get them to Utah, the, like the, the most clean-cut place in the country they could probably find that had a major city. And I think they agreed not to play games on Sundays and at home. Um, but the league had real image issues. There's, you know, there's too many drugs. You know, the drugs were a big problem in the league. And it just wasn't relatable to average fans. And David Stern did a masterful job of latching on to guys like Julius Irving, 
And then couldn't have been luckier to have Magic Johnson and Larry Bird fall in his lap in the same year. Mm-hmm. And, and then the Lakers and the Celtics going back and forth and badly. And, and really learning how to highlight. And, and David Stern, yeah, he understood the difference between basketball, baseball, football, hockey. The players are more visible in basketball than any other major sport. And the players make up, the players are the league. Um, and, and as hard a line as he would take and lock players out and squeeze us to death and try to get the best possible deal he could for the owners at the end of the day, he knew the players made the league. And, you know, football or whatever can, can try to bring in scabs or, or substitute players, but um, he recognized that you can't do that with the NBA. The product is the players, and it's too valuable to dilute it by bringing in substandard players just to play games. And, and so he, he never went to that degree. It was probably talked about, but he recognized the star power of those early guys. And then Michael Jordan and, and, you know, here's the torch. And it's not just one guy because, you know, the whole time Michael Jordan was a star. So was Patrick Ewing. So was Akeem Olajuwon. So was David Robinson. And the list just goes on and on. And there's, and there's guys that, you know, won't make those easy lists like Joe Dumars, who was a, a stellar player. That guy, I mean, you can go back and look at the game logs from my first two years in the league. He lit us up. I think he had 40-something on. It didn't even, you didn't realize he had 40 until it's, you looked at the box score after the game. It's like, how did he do that to us? It's so devastating. And, and the league is just full of guys like that, that David Stern did such a great job of highlighting and and really enduring to the fans and and really i mean i look around now at all the the accounts on twitter and youtube that are you know people are celebrating that era of basketball because they can he did a great job of of bringing television to the masses and getting all the games on tv as quickly as he possibly could i was just talking to somebody the other day i'm surprised um and maybe you'd know better than I would, that the NBA hasn't made their archive of games available yet they to people. They really yeah. haven't, except for NBA TV, which shows old games every now and then, that's it. A few games, right? Yeah, but a few, but it not got them all. Yeah. You know, and, and probably the largest warehouse in Secaucus, New Jersey, you know, they've, they've got all those games. And someday they'll release that stuff, I think. You would think, right? Wouldn't you would that, think. I mean... How many NBA fans are there in the world as people are paying eight, nine bucks a month to Netflix or Hulu for eight or nine bucks a month? You can watch any NBA game ever in the history of basketball ever, you know, thousands and thousands of games. And maybe it's just such a big digital monster that they're working on it. I'm sure they've had the conversation. Maybe it just takes time. But what a treasure trove of content that they have in their archives that they haven't even, I mean, they've got so many revenue streams they haven't even tapped into yet that they can, especially with all this weird non-fungible tokens. And I own this highlight clip. Yeah, I can pull the same highlight clip off of YouTube. I understand what you mean by saying you own that highlight clip. Anybody can watch that highlight clip anytime they want. I, and, and people are buying and selling that stuff and making gobs of money off it. So David Stern, man, what a, what a visionary. Um, and, he was, you know, he was a guy that 
at the end of the day, whether you liked him or not, you respected him. And you and, and whether you were an owner or player, the owners at the end of the day, they listened to him and they got in line because the owners weren't always on the same page. But he he did a masterful job with his owners of getting or at least getting the appearance that they were all on the same page in collective bargaining. And and really, um, I mean, look, look at the way the, the league operates to this day. And Adam Silver is undeniably a, a disciple of David Stern. You know, what other league can go around and yell at players and say, look, if you get in a fight, that's terrible. Fights are awful. We're going to fine you. We're going to suspend you. And if the fight's big enough, we're going to have documentaries about it. We're going to have the 10 best fights on NBA radio. It's like, how can you talk out of both sides? They, they figured out a way to do it, right? Fights are bad and terrible, but we're sure going to promote the heck out of it for as long as we can because that's what gets eyeballs. And they've, they've got it figured out. And, and, and they've done it in an environment that's increasingly competitive. Attention spans are getting shorter. I mean, we're an hour and eight minutes into this interview. How many people are actually hanging around for this long? But they found a way to lock people in and keep them there. And in an era where, you know, they're, they're competing with 30 years ago, if you would have told them you got to compete with, people are going to go into a stadium and fill it up to, to watch kids play video games. They're like, you mean like Pac-Man and Dick Doug? You'd be out of your mind. That's what's happening though, right? Yeah. And the NBA has found a way to stay relevant through all of that. And and not just stay relevant, but be at the top, be at the top of the pyramid. And and that's the one thing I think live sports will have going for them into the future is that it is live. And, and there's value in that because people want to see it as it happens. Everything else, we'll fast forward through the commercials or wait till it comes out on Netflix, but NBA and the NFL, they want to see it now. They want to. They, they don't want even ten seconds delay. They want to know before, so they can text their friend and make fun of them as soon as the play happens. And so, live sports have have that in their back pocket, and and the NBA has done a fantastic job of capitalizing on it. And I'm just going to say this before we conclude: uh, the error that you played in, I I can't really I'm I can't really. I, I'm not going to say for a lot of people, but for me personally, I I grew up in the 90s era where you, when you played. That was the era of basketball that I enjoyed the most because nowadays the game has changed too much. I don't really like the way it's the way it's going. I know Silver is trying to do his best. It's just in my opinion the game has just changed well again it goes back to the players right and recognizing that the players are the draw so as long as you've got guys that are not built like ufc fighters you know um kevin durant and steph curry um you're gonna you're gonna allow those guys to be the superstars that they're capable of being now they may move on and maybe you know Zion will take over and he'll be the next superstar and he'll be big and strong. And then, then they can start tweaking the rules a little bit and making it more combative, I guess, and more physical um, and change it back maybe a little bit more to the way it was before. But I'll never be one of those guys um, that I saw when I was playing that were griping about the good old days when I was in there. 
because Bob Weiss came in when he was an assistant for us in uh, in Seattle, and he brought in a tape. And uh, it, I think it was the Bulls and the Sixers. And I think Bob was playing for the Bulls at the time. And we didn't even know we're so such idiots. It was kind of pre-internet where you didn't have Wikipedia at your fingertips to look up a person's background. And I think Billy Cunningham was bringing the ball up the floor on the right-hand side, dribble with his right hand, couldn't dribble. He was the point guard, couldn't dribble with his left hand. He had to go back to the basket, 40 feet from the basket, go to the other side of the court to protect the ball because he couldn't dribble with his other hand. And Bob Weiss is showing us that, saying, don't let anybody tell you that you guys aren't as good as they were back in the day because we were awful compared to what you guys are today. And, and I look at the way guys are drilling shots from all over the place today. And I don't, I don't know that we were awful compared to the way guys were different. I, I wouldn't say the current era is any worse than us. They're just different. And they're fantastic. They're, they're the best players that have ever played the game. And it continues. The talent level continues to escalate and, and get better and better now. It's changed a little bit as guys are able to come in at a younger age. And I talk to guys who are coaching in the game, and it's like, we spend a lot more time teaching guys at this level than we used to have to do because guys would get prepared more in college. But once they, they learn it, man, there's no holding them back. So it's it's a fantastic game. And um, I, I enjoyed that 90s era, and, and I couldn't have been happier to have played in that era. But honestly, you know, there's kids growing up right now that are watching the game right now. 30 years from now, they're going to be doing the same thing you and I are, are doing right now. They're going to be – Talking to yeah. Frank Kaminsky or somebody and talking about, Frank, you were the best era of the NBA ever. Very true. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> You're right. But going to conclude, it was awesome. It was fun. You're more than welcome to come on anytime you want. Got your info. I appreciate it. Um, I will send you the episode as soon as we get off here. So you can feel free to share it all you want. Um, Put my Twitter handle on there. Let me get something out of it. That's right. That's Tell right. people to follow me on Twitter or something. At Jim McElroy. That's right. And I'll also be texting you too, because if and please spread the word, because if you know anybody, I'm looking always for interviews. So have them hit me up on Twitter. You got okay. Twitter, so yeah. Well, you know, some guys are more approachable than others, and and you know, guys are out there. So if you just send them a message, maybe they'll respond, maybe they won't, and if they don't, they're probably not a good interview anyway. Move on, find the next guy. There's there's hundreds of us out there, maybe not thousands yet, but there's exactly, certainly exactly. But it was a pleasure. I will be texting you after this, after we conclude here. So it was awesome. okay. You know who you should you should hit up is uh, James Donaldson. I think he's on Twitter, isn't he? I don't know. I haven't I haven't checked. Poke around for James because uh, do you know who Joe Pace is? I've heard of him. You, you should Wikipedia Joe Pace. Um, Joe Pace is. In, in Seattle for a while, and and, and uh, James has been trying to help him. He's been homeless and in and out of shelters and just struggling with drug addiction and all that kind of stuff. If you hit up James, they'd love to have you come on and talk about it, and we can talk about Joe and trying to help Joe and the fundraiser that you're doing. I think you'd probably get James in there pretty quickly okay. and, and lead off with that and say, let's talk about Joe Pace and what he's going through it. Okay. And give him an opportunity to promote that because that that's probably generally a good angle for anybody that you want to try to get on if they've got something they're trying some agenda agenda like per, yeah they're running some political office or they're trying to help you know a charity or something like that say I'd like to help you promote it here's an opportunity I, right. I don't have any of that going on right now I just 
Follow my schedule. So. That's right. That's right. That's Follow right. me on Twitter. And... Exactly. But definitely, it was fun. You stay safe out there. You, your wife, and your kids. I know it's hectic out there. Stay safe out there, okay? You too. You guys have a good night. All right, you too. All right, bye. Bye. Jim McElvain, everybody. That concludes episode 65. Have a good night and a happy new year. Stay safe. Don't get drunk. Don't drink and drive. Good night.